with Felix and Festus in, uh, later on in Acts where uh, they say this man could have been set free if he had not appealed uh, to Rome. And so uh, Luke is trying to show us uh, what the, this huge part of his narrative is, is that uh, even though the Jews accused and abused both Jesus and Paul, the Romans always acquitted them. They never found any wrongdoing in Jesus or Paul because the Christian faith was legal and it was legitimate. And, and that's a big purpose for why Luke is writing uh, both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Uh, he wants us to see that, they were, uh, that, that what they were doing was legal and legitimate. But that, of course, didn't change how the Jews perceived what Paul was doing. And so as we come to Acts chapter 21... Uh, we have to uh, realize that times have changed in Jerusalem. Uh, 25 years have passed since the first uh, coming of the Holy Spirit uh, to Jerusalem at Pentecost with Peter back in Acts chapter 2. And so a lot has happened uh, in those years. Uh, Paul probably arrived in Jerusalem for Pentecost of AD 57 now. That's the time period that we're up to. And that's the beginning of the 10-year period that precedes what is known as the Jewish Wars. Uh, the Jewish Wars were uh, the result of a Jewish rebellion against the Romans that ended up in the Romans burning down the temple uh, in 70 AD. And so uh, this was a time of, of uh, a lot of strife, uh, difficulty, unrest uh, in Jerusalem. There had been a, a string of bad Roman procurators uh, and they had uh, been abusive uh, to the Jews and not very well liked by the Jews, and they abused their powers. And uh, this led to the rise of, uh, of a Jewish group called the Sicarii. Uh, they used to uh, go around with uh, knives hidden in their robes, uh, and they would stab people uh, who were deemed to be uh, aristocrats who were sympathetic towards Rome and who conspired uh, against the Jews. And so uh, the first century historian Josephus described uh, the mid-50s of Jerusalem as a time of uh, intense persecution, a, a time of great political unrest, uh, and a time of strong Jewish nationalism. Uh, and one insurrection after another would rise up in Jerusalem, and they had to be put down uh, by the procurator, who was Felix at the time. And, and Felix was known as being particularly harsh against those uh, who would rise up against him. And and this created very strong feelings of Jewish nationalism and Jewish pride against anything perceived to be non-Jewish. And so here comes Paul into this new Jerusalem uh, with his group of Gentile believers uh, facing this group of Jewish believers. And so there is tension there that might not have existed uh, 25 years ago. And so we'll talk now about the problem of Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. Just try to imagine uh, this meeting of Jews and Gentiles as this passage uh, begins and, and continues. Uh, Paul and his entourage entered the city and it says that the brethren received him gladly. And that probably means the brethren in the house of Manasseh that we saw last week, uh, probably not the party of James. But in verse 18, it says the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all of the elders were present. Uh, so you have James and his entourage, you have Paul and his entourage, and probably uh, patterning themselves after the Sanhedrin, which had 70 members, there were probably 70 members or 70 elders uh, in this early Jerusalem church. And it's possible that uh, all of them, or perhaps many of them, uh, were present at this time. And most of them probably didn't know Paul. They only knew Paul by what they had heard about Paul. 
And so that's the group of Jewish believers. And now Paul's got his group of Gentile believers, and they're facing each other in this time of suspicion and unrest uh, in Jerusalem. And it seems like James wanted to receive Paul gladly, but there is also this concern that, Paul ha or that James has about how uh, Paul would be received by these Jews in Jerusalem. So uh, Paul goes in and he tells James, verse 19, about all the amazing things that God had been doing uh, through him uh, to the Gentiles as he has traveled about uh, in these foreign lands. Uh, and James and the elders, verse 20, seemed genuinely to be uh, thrilled about that. They began glorifying God. But then James says, look, uh, Paul, verse uh, 20, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews also uh, who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And so uh, kind of a preview for, about, for what's about to happen as you have these Jews who, are, Jews who are zealous for the law. Paul's got his thousands of converts. James has his thousands of converts. And I don't want to paint the picture like this is going to be a, a civil war, like a clash between these two, but it's very clear that there is concern uh, from James about how Paul is going to be received uh, because he was in a bit of a pickle with Paul's arrival in Jerusalem uh, because of Paul's reputation for speaking out against the law. Now, I want us to remember the purpose why Paul came to Jerusalem. Remember that he had been traveling around in the Macedonian churches and he had collected this offering and he was intent to bring that offering to Jerusalem, even though he had been warned several times by his friends and by the Holy Spirit that bonds and afflictions uh, awaited him. And so, uh, given that that was his purpose, and we've seen that for several chapters, it's kind of a bit stunning uh, that Luke doesn't mention the presentation of the offering as Paul comes to Jerusalem. So uh, there are several theories about why that is, and, and one of them is, is that perhaps the offering that uh, Paul brought was rejected by the Jewish church. And uh, there's not a whole lot of scholarship that agrees with that particular uh, possibility, but another possibility is that uh, perhaps that offering was never delivered for some reason. Uh, maybe Paul just decided that the time wasn't right. But Acts chapter 24, verse 17 seems to speak against that. When Paul is testifying before Felix, he says, uh, After several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. So it sounds from his own testimony like he did actually present the offering. There's a third possibility, and that's that the, the offering did not have its intended effect on the church. Remember that Paul really wanted in his heart to see these churches unified, the Jewish church and the Gentile church. He wanted them all to be one. Remember he said there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. He wanted there to be one unified church, and maybe uh, this offering was presented and, and didn't have the effect that he hoped that the, the church would be unified, which was his ultimate goal. Remember, uh, when he wrote Romans, he mentioned in chapter 15 that perhaps he might not be accepted when he went to Jerusalem. Uh, and Romans was written uh, just uh, probably a year before uh, this, this trip that he was going to make uh, to Jerusalem. He said this in Romans 15, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. So there is that possibility that, that he was not received uh, well and that the, uh, the church was not unified by his gift. 
But there's a fourth option, and that's the one that I prefer, and that's that James wanted Paul to prove uh, that he was not the agitator that he was rumored and reputed to be. And I don't mean prove it to James. I mean prove it to those uh, Jews who might accuse him. Uh, And he might have asked him to do this before the offering was accepted. Uh, Verse 21, James shows his concern. He says, look, they've all been told about you and that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to their customs. So you have James who's clearly concerned. Uh, He's probably not concerned so much about uh, the the, uh, non-Christian Jews, but concerned about those Jewish Christians who were still observing the Torah. Remember uh, just a a couple of verses ago, he said, they are all still zealous for the law. Uh, And so if they thought that Paul was preaching and teaching outside of Jerusalem, uh, teaching those Jews that they didn't have to keep the law or circumcision or their customs, well, that could be a real problem for Paul. And politically, that could be a real problem for James if he was receiving Paul uh, when he was teaching these things. And so uh, Luke says, uh, this is what has been told about you. Uh, They're saying that you are telling them to forsake Moses and not to circumcise their children and not to walk according to the Jewish uh, customs. And, and these were very serious charges, which, of course, were not exactly true. Uh, Paul did tell Jews that they didn't have to observe the law or circumcision, but only uh, with respect to being saved. It wasn't something that was going to earn them their salvation. For salvation, he told them over and over again, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And explicitly, he says this in Galatians chapter 2, when he says, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even as we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So he didn't necessarily have anything against the works of the law for their proper purposes, but certainly as unto salvation, you could not earn your way Uh, into salvation. And James, of course, agreed with that. We saw that at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. So it wasn't a dispute about salvation, and it wasn't a dispute about the moral law. James agreed that they should keep the moral law as well, but James was worried that people thought that that Paul was teaching out against observances, Jewish observances of the uh, ritual customs, and the the Torah-observing Jews still believe that you should observe those things as well. And that's why James was concerned now that Paul had come and we'll see this ritual uh, uh, observance of of, uh, the Jews that is going to be observed in a few verses. So uh, here's what James says to Paul. He says, what then is to be done? They'll certainly hear that you have come. And so James is anticipating this problem. Uh, and, and, and the reason for James's suggestion in, in verses 23 and 24 is to assure the people that there was no truth uh, to these rumors that they had heard about Paul. So let's look at the proposal that James makes uh, to Paul. Uh, James's solution to the problem would make it clear that, that Paul actually supported those Jewish Christians who observed the cultural ritual practices in the Torah and that Paul himself was not averse to keeping the law and its rituals. So verse 23, uh, uh, James says, Do what we tell you. There are four men under a vow, 
And so we have to infer that it was a Nazarite vow because as we read in verse 24, this had to do with a shaving of the head. And, and Nazarite vows are first discussed in Numbers chapter 6, goes back a long way, back to the Pentateuch, where uh, people could uh, have a time of special dedication to the Lord. Uh, which usually lasted about 30 days, and during that time they would uh, drink no wine or strong drink. They would uh, not uh, have any association with any uh, dead animals or anything or dead people, and they would not uh, shave their heads. And during that special time, they were dedicating themselves uh, to the Lord. Uh, but there were also provisions in that Nazarite vow for what you are to do in the case that you should accidentally become defiled, like if you should accidentally find yourself near or touching a dead body. And so that period of time to purify yourself would last about a week. So these four men were probably several weeks into their vow already, this 30-day vow. And then Paul here comes in on the tail end of this vow and it may be that James was asking Paul to kind of undergo the purification part of the Nazarite vow because he had been in Gentile lands for a long period of time and he would be seen as ceremonially unclean by these Jews because he had been in Gentile lands for so long. So at the end of this 30 days, both Paul and these four men would have their impurity removed by participating in this purification ritual. And James thought that if Paul would agree to this, then in verse 24, they will know that there is nothing to these things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself walk orderly and that you keep the law. And then maybe uh, James thought that he could accept uh, Paul's offering in good faith without a fear of Jewish backlash for receiving that offering from the Gentiles. And then in verse 25, Paul, uh, James assures Paul that he's not going back on the decree of the Jerusalem uh, council that had been reached uh, years ago. He says, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. So as far as James was concerned, uh, Paul, he was teaching what was necessary for Gentiles to observe, uh, not what Jews had to observe. Uh, this was necessary for Gentiles. This was all the only restrictions that he put on them. But for Jews, observance of the rituals, especially the customs and the cultural practices, uh, James wanted the Jews to know that there was nothing to these rumors that Paul uh, might have been teaching against these things and to abandon their own customs. Now, think about Paul. We often think of Paul as a really hard man, right? We think of him as like a, a my way or the highway kind of guy sometimes. And uh, can you feel Paul's stomach churning as this suggestion is being made to him, right? He's being put in, a, in an awkward position. He didn't believe that these cultural practices had any value uh, toward their salvation at all. Uh, but James wanted him to do them anyway. And we've all been in this position where we have to decide. We've been asked to compromise. And will we compromise? How much will we compromise? How far can we go before our compromise has turned into a sellout and we've abandoned uh, what it is that we were holding fast to? I think that compromise was really hard for a guy like Paul. And I can imagine him uh, standing there with his stomach churning, thinking about what he's being asked to do and thinking how much compromise is too much compromise. And, and I think as he thought through this, he said, well, the gospel is not being compromised. 
here. I am not being asked to compromise who Jesus is, what Jesus did, how we're saved. I don't think Paul would ever have compromised the integrity of the gospel. Uh, and I think he just, with, with regard to these Jewish rituals, he didn't require Gentiles to keep them, and he didn't prevent the Jews from keeping them. He just said, you Jews are not going to be saved by these works of the law, but you're free to do them if you want to. Just don't put improper emphasis on them. So I think as Paul was going through this process in his mind, I think he decided that he was going to do what he exemplified and what he taught uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, chapter 9. You remember what he said there. He said, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, so that I myself not being under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So Paul was not as inflexible as we may think. He was probably the most flexible evangelist ever. And that brings us to a couple of points of application. And the first one is that we need to learn how to be flexible evangelists. In our day, what does that look like? Uh, we can hold so hard and fast to the non-essentials at the expense of the essentials. We have to know what the essentials are. Uh, only the things with eternal value are the things that are necessary for salvation. Those are the only things that we have to hold on to. We have to hold that Jesus is God, that he is eternal, that he is the creator of the universe, that he became a man born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life that qualified him to serve as our substitute to receive the punishment that we deserve for God's wrath against our sin. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose on the third day, and he's seated now at the right hand of the Father. And God was satisfied with his sacrifice, and that's why he raised him up. And now, uh, if we want to go to heaven, we need to believe that, that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, that he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. And when we've done that, we need to allow him to be our Lord and Savior. We need to conform our lives to his standard of holiness. Those are the essentials. There are so many times that we mistake the non-essentials for the essentials. Let me give you some examples. I have strong feelings about baptism. I believe in believer's baptism. Others believe in infant baptism. I might be wrong. I might be right. It's not a salvation issue, and so I'm not willing to divide with others over that. If you disagree with me, it's okay. I believe in a rapture and a 1,000-year earthly millennial kingdom. Other people don't believe that. They don't believe in a rapture and an earthly kingdom. That's okay. It's not a salvation issue. You don't have to agree with me about that. I'm not willing to divide over it. I think it's okay to drink a little bit of alcohol in moderation. If you disagree with me, fine. Not a salvation issue. I believe it's okay to play instruments in church. Some denominations don't believe that. Again, not a salvation issue. Uh, I don't believe in the King James only. 
Uh, I don't believe in sacraments other than baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, I believe in capital punishment. I believe in degrees of reward uh, and punishment in hell and heaven, but not salvation issues. You don't have to agree with me about these things, and we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. I can list a thousand other things that churches divide over, right? We divide over dress. We divide over music. We divide over hymns uh, versus praise music, drums, no drums. Uh, we divide over too much liturgy, not enough liturgy. There's a million things that we in churches divide over, but none of these things are salvation issues. And all of these things are to the shame of the church. And we begin to look like our nation, right? Like the Democratic and Republican parties that are just so fixed and won't even move an inch toward each other. No compromise at all. The church is supposed to be different. We are supposed to build bridges between people. And we don't have to agree on everything, but that doesn't mean we can't agree on anything. Uh, so if we're going to reach the lost like Paul did, we are going to have to learn that not every single thing that we believe is essential. And we're even going to have to learn that we're wrong about some things. Like, I know that I am wrong about some things. I just don't know which things they are, or else I would be happy to change them. And you are wrong about some things. And if you knew, I'm sure you would change them. Uh, God is a mystery, and so it's important for us uh, not to think that we have him all figured out, especially in the many areas that God has not spoken, and that's the places where we tend to divide. Uh, so my point is that we have to learn to be like Paul. We have to learn to be able to compromise in the non-essentials. Uh, what would have happened if he refused to compromise and refused to take this vow that James asked him to take? Probably his gift would have been rejected. Uh, probably James would have had a hard time welcoming Paul and Paul's entourage. Uh, Paul's goal of unity, of the, of, of the unity between the Jewish and the Gentile church, uh, probably would not have happened. And, and most importantly, the gospel would not have been advanced. And that was Paul's ultimate goal. He wanted to advance the gospel and bring unity to these churches. And that's why he said, I do all things for the sake of of the gospel. Uh, if Paul compromised here, it was for the greater good of the advancement of the gospel. And all of this may have been lost if Paul decided that he would not participate in this cultural ritual, which had no bearing on salvation, but would have given comfort to the people that he was trying to reach. It was more important for Paul to be loving than it was for him to be right. And so Paul recognized all this, and I think that churning that may have existed in his belly, I think that dissipated. I think it went away, and he freely chose to participate in that ritual. Verse 26, then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Well, as we'll see next week, uh, Paul was mobbed by uh, these non-Christian Jews when he went into uh, the temple. Uh, and, and they accused him, of course, of preaching uh, to all men everywhere that they should not keep uh, the circumcision and the law and of bringing Greeks into the temple. And we'll, we've seen what happens when mob rules in other parts of the book of Acts, and we'll see it again uh, next week. Uh, but I want us to, to know now that not only should we be flexible evangelists, but we also have to learn to be humble evangelists. We have to alert, allow the Holy Spirit to guide us and to direct us. Don't force the non-essentials onto others. 
a compromise in the non-essentials will show our humility and it will make us more attractive to the people that we are trying to reach. Remember, Paul uh, came to, to or, or preached that we should be unified and Jesus came uh, to become all things so that he could uh, save people. And that was Paul's goal as well. Uh, so think about how Jesus compromised to save us. Can you imagine being God and compromising your deity to become a human and to allow yourself to be crucified by sinful creatures uh, who you created? Can you imagine that kind of humility? He died a shameful death on the cross so that we might have eternal life. And so I pray that like Paul and like Jesus, it will be our goal to be loving rather than to be right, to compromise where we can, not compromising the gospel ever, but to compromise in areas of non-essentials like Paul did. And that's how we win souls to Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this message from Paul, uh, just exemplifying by his behavior that everybody doesn't have to agree with every single thing that we believe in order to be our brothers and sisters. We have to hold to the essentials, Lord, but we do not have to hold to uh, every single thing that is non-essential to salvation. Lord, help us to learn this lesson from Paul. As Paul wrestled with these things and decided how much compromise was too much compromise, uh, he said, as long as the gospel is not being compromised, it's not too much compromise. And Lord, I pray that we would understand these things. And as we go out from here and uh, tell people about your majesty and your glory and tell people the gospel, Lord, that we would do it with a humble heart like Paul did, uh, trying to reach all, uh, however we can, for the sake of their salvation, Lord. We pray that these things would be so. In Jesus' name, amen.